Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hello, beautiful people. Today we're talking to Garrett Brockman. He is a certified addiction counselor and the executive of Alta Centers with 10 years of experience. Hello, Garrett. Hey. <laughs> um, let's quickly talk about our origin story as friends, which I always like to do. <laughs> Um, we met when I was working at a bar slash club slash hotel <laughs> called Pally House in West Hollywood. <laughs> slash the lobby of a hotel. Slash the lobby of a hotel. It was my, uh, introduction into being a door girl. Um, if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's like a terrifying person that stands outside and just determines whether you're allowed to come into a venue or not and in los angeles it is it can be a very brutal process and i used to be known for my brutality yes <laughs> um i just was principled you know i didn't want to see a girl wearing her best of everything and looking beautiful and her hair all done up and high heels and her dude wearing flip-flops <laughs> and cargo shorts i i would literally be like your girlfriend can go come in you need to clean yourself up and come back (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah that's a little bit about the kind of door girl i was but i was good at it right you were very good at it (laughs) i think just someone giving me permission to not be sugar sweet and kind all the time was like something i really needed it was for my personality at that time it's the greatest and worst job you can have in los angeles oh it's it's crazy like people basically bow to you which is also insane you're like wow you really want to get into this bar this bad (laughs) and then yeah or they scream at you i had like a a car full of like 15 dudes calling me the c word at full (laughs) volume and i was like so is my uh, life here at the door. Uh, Met one time John Mayer came by in a like a Robin Hood costume or something like that. I don't even remember that. <laughs> and that I was, was like, what are you wearing? It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> um but yeah. <laughs> And then Garrett was the DJ, and fascinatingly enough, I mean, it shouldn't be that fascinating, but sober, I was fascinated by that because I was like, you know, I just need at least one glass of wine to get through the night and handle all these drunk people. And just, just Red Bull. <laughs> just Red Bull. It's, it's wonderful. Good for you. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get serious. Um, you 
came into this whole profession and feel passionate about it because you have personal experience. Yes. Yes. Would you mind telling the yes. God is Great community about what brought you here? So um, I grew up in a household full of drug addicts and alcoholics. Um, my father um, committed suicide from his drug addiction at, when I was 13, and my mom subsequently went to five or six treatment centers by the time I was 18. Um, from there, I kind of learned a lot about addiction and mental illness and the issues relating to substance abuse. So I decided to get sober um, at a young age, um, watching my mom go through treatment, realizing that addiction is a disease. I, uh, I learned that urinating yourself when drinking alcohol is maybe not the best. Should um, I stop doing that? <laughs> <laughs> and waking up and God knows how many headaches and terrible, terrible things happening. So I stopped drinking and doing drugs. Well, um, when did you start? When was your first drink? I was 12. Oh, wow. Where did you have this drink? Who gave it to you? Oh, God. I think we... We stole it from somebody's parents. Okay. Somebody's parents. And then uh, I I remember instantly, and I smoked weed, and I remember instantly that those two things were like, oh, I feel good in my own skin. Mm. Um, I bet. At 12, you're really yeah. trying to sort out who you are. <laughs> like, I can't imagine if I had the cheat of alcohol and marijuana to help me feel like adolescence wasn't yeah. as terrifying. And, uh, and then it kind of, I kind of leveled out with that for like a year, um, being in the hardcore scene and kind of making my emotions more about anger. And then it kind of snuck back into my life and I started, I believe I actually, I didn't drink first. I, after that, I smoked a cigarette and then it just kind of went off from there. Mm. And then I started doing a bunch of drugs. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so at what age did you get sober then? At 18. 18. Okay. Yes. And you've been sober ever since? Yes. Wow. Was that a difficult transition or did you feel determined to do it? Actually, I was going to do it for just 90 days to get my family off my back. I was on tour with a band. I dropped out of high school to go on tour because I thought I was going to be a rock star, and it didn't work. Wow. Um, so I decided, well, I'll get sober for like a few months and then maybe go back to what I was doing, and then I just kind of did it and kept doing it. Mm, okay. Yeah. All right. And you, well, that, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I mean, there were some certain like, hard times, but I just decided that this was what eventually I got about a year and then, it just made more sense to stay sober. Right. My life was good. I got into college. I moved forward. So I just kept doing it. Okay. Interesting. I've always been a, um, I always call myself a European drinker. I fancy myself like an older French woman. Like I really love a glass of wine at dinner. I, I don't, I've only been like really drunk a couple of times. And that's, I think just cause I didn't know my own limitations. Yeah. I can't say I ever peed myself. <laughs> I Certainly. definitely 
threw up a couple of times. Well, and there's a common <laughs> misconception with, with substance abuse where people, especially in, in the two polar opposite worlds I'm in, where I've worked in nightlife and in substance abuse treatment, where people... Yeah, are, that's crazy dichotomy. People believe that I'm some, you know, crazy, um, hard type person about it. And it doesn't matter to me. What matters is if you have a problem with it, that you're going to get help for it. Right. Um, if you don't have a problem and you can drink normally, that's amazing. I'm just not one of the people that could do that. Right. Um, I think also I wanted to ask you, because as a spiritual person, I, I kind of always hated to hear the phrase once an addict, always an addict, because I often hate labeling in my own life or thinking about like, oh, if I have this one issue or this one thing, I keep falling back into a problem that I'm stuck as that person or I have to define myself as that thing. But for you, you know, as an expert, why is it so important that people understand that that is a part, like, did you say that's a part of who they are or that that identity is important? I think that identity is important because of the neurological responses in the brain to substance abuse. Um, With substance abuse, you're dealing with a biopsychosocial disorder, so you're dealing with biological components, you're dealing with parts of the brain that this is a genetic disease, this is a disease. So it's the same as somebody with diabetes saying they're in remission or cancer, they're in remission. Mm-hmm. You're never really fully, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm, you know, I, I have never had cancer, or yeah. what if you have cancer? So you would say the same with addiction where not that the two are related other than the fact that they're both diseases. Right. But at what point in history was this classified as a disease? I believe it was 19, it was in the fifties. I, I don't want to say exact year, but somewhere around the, the 1950s. So quite recent at the end of the day. Yes. Yeah. Um, that must've been a huge awakening for people. When it's still not totally there. I like to say we are the, uh, redheaded stepchild of healthcare. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's because... true. People stigmatize and, and believe it's the person's fault. I mean, not everybody, but yeah, there's no, there's no other disease I can think of that you would ever put the blame on the person right. besides alcoholism or drug right. addiction. And that's why I always go back to when talking about addiction, I always go back to diabetes because it's one of those self, sometimes self-inflicted disorders mm. that people have a genetic predisposition to, mm. but it's one that somehow most of society feels comfortable with, whereas with substance abuse, they don't. So you have, if somebody eats very poorly and develops diabetes, they're treated medically. They're not treated like a terrible person for Mm. having this disease. Um, Whereas with addiction, you know, the insurance companies will go through all sorts of hoops to not pay for care. Wow. That's really upsetting. What do you think, like you must see so many people trying to jump over that hurdle of shame, like the compounded yeah. shame of having a disease and also having to take it on as the, the right. with the stigma that it has. How do you help people get through that that shame? I think understanding that this isn't a moral failing, this isn't something that people, you know, like my own story, it's not something that I can control. 
I happen to respond to alcohol differently than other people. Um, you know, who's can, to can tell? I ask you what that feels like? I mean, to me, it's it's very normal now, but I also work in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think in the beginning, it's a lot of shame and guilt and a lot of feelings of, because not only is it compounded shame from all the behaviors you've done over the years, and, you know, my drinking history is very small compared to some of the patients I see, but, you know, some of those people have had years of experience with shame and guilt based around their addiction. So for me... I think it's understanding that this is a disorder that you, yes, you're responsible for your actions once you get sober, but it's about healing from those decisions you made when you were under the influence. Yeah. I've never even thought about that. You have the shame of the addiction you have the shame of the actions you've taken that were out of character while in the addiction. And I think it's a little awkward, especially for people like myself who got sober because I had, you know, low self-worth and self-value. And then you get sober and it's like, how am I going to date sober? How am I going to live sober? Mm. I mean, dating sober was a whole nother ball game of Tell me about it. Yeah. How does, how does that go over? Well, just in general, I think society has this okay with like, if you're a little drunk and you happen to kiss somebody, for instance, Mm -hmm. if someone came and tried to kiss you at a party and then the next day they were like, oh man, I'm sorry, I was just hammered. That was a crazy <laughs> night. That's yeah. totally normal. For some reason, we give that the pass. Right. But if you're sober, you're just like, hey, it's me. Well, <laughs> read those signs wrong. Sorry. Let's be friends. It's a, it's a whole nother ball game. Fair. Yeah. Very it's, fair. It's a very, I think to me, I've always been okay with it. Even uh, I remember just Recently, my birthday was in March, and my girlfriend took me out to a, a dinner at a steakhouse um, and that somehow was famous for their wine as well. And the guy made a comment to me, the waiter made a comment that he said, how's that Coca-Cola opening up for you? That's mm. kind of like a, a backhanded comment towards me. <clears throat> and I, uh, I just kind of responded with, well, if I, if I drank those cops that are sitting over there eating dinner would probably have to arrest me (laughs) and it would probably not be a good night for you as well as for me. Um, And then he kind of scurried away. I think that's kind of this perception of the way we should, we should always be partying and drinking, especially in Los Angeles. I love that. Shame people for addiction, shame people for being sober. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Even the events I've done, I mean, the amount of events I've done where people are, I remember I did an event for a a television station and the bartender was like, you know, it's an open bar, right? You don't have to get soda. Yeah. I'm like, no, I know. I'm purposely not drinking. And then do you feel like you're always outed? Like you have to announce this thing or something i don't think so i mean the nature of my work is that i kind of do yeah Um, but i feel okay with that Um, i think sharing your story is so powerful and part of that is also because i'm you know i i believe that those of us that are sober need to speak up and talk about it that we have a inability to share that it's normal yeah Um, especially someone who's worked in nightlife who's seen multiple other djs in a city like Hollywood who are sober and successful or musicians and artists that have this creative ability, but also don't drink and do drugs. Right. I was 21 years sober. 
I hope she didn't drink till you're 21. <laughs> yeah, coming from Christian culture. I mean, there are some things in Christian culture that I actually thank God for, honestly. Like, you know, I think purity culture, saving yourself from marriage, did a lot of harm for my psyche. But also having that hard line when I was like living in a fraternity house with a bunch of idiots. I'm like... <laughs> Oh, thank God I had that virginity pledge going. And uh, same thing with alcohol, because I used to go to frat parties in Philly when I was at Temple University before I came to L.A. And I would carry around a red cup just so people would stop asking me. And I would just fill it with whatever, because I was like so sick of everyone being like, what are you drinking? Mine's Red Bull Cranberry. There you go. That's the, uh, that's the, the cocktail. But or, I remember I had like, I mean, I was fully present. I had so much fun. Like sometimes I wish I could take it back and just be a sober person. Yeah. Um, because what you don't, you know, what you don't yeah, know, I, you just don't know. I've learned to just really love it because there's no more hangovers. There's no more. I remember hearing someone, it was actually a, a former client of mine said in a group we were doing that um, being grateful about being sober is about waking up in the morning and because we've had the experience of having these intense hangovers and these intense, you know, craving for drugs and waking up in the morning after doing a bunch of drugs and waking with, you know, a headache and everything else that happens. Great gratitude towards sobriety is about waking up in the morning and knowing that experience and being happy that you can smell the roses and, you know, mm-hmm. have a cup of coffee in the morning and, it's not because I've learned the bad, I can process the good. Yeah, I like that. Without struggle, there is no progression, which is actually the first tattoo I ever got. Without struggle, there is no progression. Yes. I believe that. My brother used to say that to me, and so it was like the one line that I've always held on to. I wish it weren't true, but it is. <laughs> you learn much less on the sunny days. Yes. Um. Tell me about Alta Centers. So Alta Centers was a creation I developed um, that basically is focused on not just young adults, but um, all adults, but just more of a creative way to process sobriety. Um, Right now we operate a detox facility in Hollywood, um, and we previously have had some other treatment centers, and we're developing a a residential center right now. Um, But basically our, our kind of guiding light is to teach people how to get sober that's in a healthy way that can show them how to live their best life and process the feelings and emotions of early sobriety okay amazing yeah um and how long have you been in that uh we opened in 2015 yeah so four four years okay congratulations um do you mind if I ask some stories about clients and experiences you've had? Yeah. yeah I mean, I just find the whole thing quite fascinating. Um, do you ever, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the 12 step program and how it's like uh, Christian based or has roots in that. And um, do you find a lot of people come through that are either relying on their religious background or ashamed by their religious background when it comes to the issue that they're bringing? I think they certainly feel shame from their religious background. Um, I think a little of both. Um, 
that people certainly do, uh, they don't have really a place to turn in the religious community um, because the religious community is based around the 12-step program, but, or the 12-step programs are based around the religious community, but um, there isn't a lot of a safety net with the religious community as well. Why do you say that? Um, just the idea of, I think a lot of, a lot of the religious pieces of, of substance abuse is um, really rooted in some of that shame culture of, you know, you can't do this without God, without something. This is a medical illness. We're not talking about if, if you had cancer, I wouldn't tell you to, you know, seek help of God. I'd tell you to maybe do that on the side, but go see a medical doctor who's a specialist in that. Yeah. Um, and I think there is, because we're more new to the healthcare community, there is a, a shift that's happening. It hasn't fully occurred yet, but a shift that's happening where we're starting to really talk about evidence-based practices and treating substance abuse with peer-reviewed research, not just the religious community. I, I mean, I remember growing, growing up and going to church and hearing uh, the once-a-year sermon about addiction and it's like well you can't do this unless you got god and oh, okay. um, that really alienated a lot of people especially if you're a substance abuser i mean not a lot of those people have found their way towards god yet they're you know out in the community doing god knows what um, so I, I do think there's some alienation um, within the religious community and especially outside of uh, christianity there's a lot you know in, in different cultures there's the cultural shame of people that drink excessively in Muslim culture, um, which is part of their religion is not to drink at all. So mm. when you have alcoholism and you're a Muslim American, you feel an intense shame. Mm. Um, and that's part of like a topic about, you know, multiple oppressions. If you're an LGBTQ person, I, I worked for a year and a half at a center for LGBTQ uh, individuals and you're dealing with these multiple oppressions of being you oh, know, wow. uh, a gay man who grew up in the south with religious parents and how you have a heroin problem um, and a methamphetamine problem and you're and on top of that maybe you're a person of color you know there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. there's these multiple oppressions you're dealing with where you have to deal with that shame and guilt because addiction is really rooted in in those biopsychosocial components so when i say that it means like biologically with the brain like i talked about earlier um, but also psychologically you know what do you where do you turn to for help when you're turning to substances um, then you have that component of oh i feel shame i need to go use mm. i need to stop thinking um, so that's the the cycle of addiction you have this cycle of starting then feeling shame when you stop than wanting to use more because you feel shame. Right. Um, so it is that combination of a biological predisposition and yes, the social construct so, that you're feeling yes. or whatever. Um, so there's the psychological aspects in there. There's actually a, a wonderful study I always direct people to, which is the uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Um, and it was done by Kaiser. Um, and there's a great TED Talk on it. Um, that are the state of California just 
got the woman who did the TED Talk to be our Surgeon General for the state. Um, she's fantastic. I forget her name offhand, but um, if you search adverse childhood experiences, it's a, it was a study done in San Diego with 50,000 people. And um, basically, for each childhood experience you had that was an ACE score, you were predisposed to even heart disease, to addiction, to um, mental health issues. Um, and part of what the, the TED Talk really does good at explaining was she says, um, you know, fight or flight senses are great when you're trying to fight a bear. Um, but when the bear's in your living room every night when you're 10 years old, it can cause heart palpitations. It can cause physical damage within you. Oh, wow. And the same goes for addiction. Mm. So you're looking at these these components of, I always say, I would say a good 90% of, on the conservative side, 90% um, of patients that are coming into substance abuse treatment have a predisposition with genetics and childhood trauma. Combined. Um, yes. Those Ni are like wow. the... A 90% statistic from your experience. From my experience. Again, it's not a peer-reviewed at all, but just... From my experience in working in treatment for 10 years, that's generally the case. There are outliers. There are obviously uh, Purdue Pharma and the pharmaceutical companies that put Oxycontin and there are other people that <sighs> generally just got addicted to painkillers and yeah. you know, their brain is wired to be physically addicted to a substance. Right. Um, but that is generally what I'm seeing. And that's where... A lot of, especially being from the Midwest, I, f I feel like the zeitgeist is starting to change, but you're seeing a lot of people talk about addiction, like shaming them. And, and the reality is when you put it into scientific constructs and you're saying, here's a person who was given a medication, because most people, even with predisposed trauma, were given Oxycontin, um, at least the heroin addicts that I'm seeing. So you're looking at a drug that, takes you know a physically addictive form and it's per milligram dosage on the street is the value so if it's 80 milligrams that pill is 80 dollars wow. so heroin is 15 dollars a bag if your body's saying you need this you need this you need this i need you to get this now it's only a matter of time before someone goes to heroin because i always get the question of well how do people start heroin how do you do it? We all know heroin's bad. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do. But when your brain is hijacked by a, a brain disorder that tells you do anything to get what you need to get, yeah, it's hard to put the blame on that individual. Especially when you see the extremes that people go to, stealing right. money from their families, turning tricks on the streets. Right. Like People are obviously not just consciously making this decision. And that's the most important part about addiction to me is like the the shame and guilt. Um, I have a, a interesting viewpoint because I'm both a child of an addict, of addicts, and uh, myself a recovering addict. Um, you know, I, I think there is a lot of anger on from families, and I can't tell you I wasn't angry the fifth time my mom entered treatment, um, but. When I went to Family Week the first time, actually, yeah, when I first was invited to Family Week, I told the people, I said, why do I have to go? That's her problem. And they said, well, you should go. And then I was like, this is her problem. I don't know why I'm here. And then they 
broke it down for me. And that's when I really fell in love with doing this was because I saw, wow, I've been wrong the whole time. I put this shame, blame on her, and it's not even, it's this disorder. And so there's a difference between the addict and the person. And I think if anyone is listening that has a family member or someone they love that's a drug addict, that's the most important piece to me is that there is a difference between the addict and the person you know. And to place, it's okay to be angry, but place that blame on the addict version of them. Mm. That there is the wonderful person we all know and love, and then there's the addict. It's just really difficult because I, I have experience with addicts in my life, and it's so. That's really difficult. It's oh, a challenge. Yes, very much so. Yeah. I have certainly dealt with that pain and anguish myself, and I mean, I truly believe it's easier. From dealing with families and dealing with the addict, I think sometimes it is easier to be the addict to some degree because at least they have a relief. I've had so many parents say, I'm so happy they're in your center because it's the first night I'll ever get a good night's sleep. Mm. Um, Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's definitely an aspect of like, it's a lot, it's hard to not be shameful when you're dealing with the anger and because addicts are difficult human beings. <laughs> yes. I deal with them every day. They are very hard to deal with. <laughs> and my job would be so easy if we could just say, you know what? Stop. And just <laughs> stop doing that. Stop yeah. doing drugs. But it's not that easy. Um, if that was the process we all had to, had to endure, I would probably be very wealthy very quickly unfortunately <laughs> well, I, I would do it too i, I could... still have my 2014 prius so <laughs> um what are some of the most common hurdles that you see people able to jump over to get healed to get not healed i guess but to manage their addiction i think i think going through talk therapy getting help from a therapist really dealing with what we call relapse prevention, which is like dealing with triggers, dealing with cravings, and finding out what your pressure points are. Okay. Um, And what are some examples of triggers that people experience? I mean, I can tell you from my own personal experience, um, just a a story of, I was eight years sober. This was two and a half, three years ago. I was eight years sober, and I had gone to a after-hours party with somebody um, which was a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. And, After uh, hours is always a terrible always idea. It's always a bad idea. <laughs> and it was somebody in a band, and, and they were actually talking to me about sobriety, which is why I came out with them. Um, is they were thinking about getting sober, and it was a friend of mine. And somehow we ended up at this party, and I saw a drug dealer um, give him cocaine. And honest to God, I had already started an organization, I was already in an executive leadership position, and my first thought was, I have a second shirt in the car, I was wearing a bright yellow shirt, and so I said, I have a second shirt in the car, I'm going to say I'm leaving, change shirts, come back in, go get drugs from that guy, and and get the hell out of here, and go do a bunch of drugs. Wow. And, uh, And I knew that was my thought, so I immediately called a friend when I was leaving, and said, I just need you to talk to me the entire time I drive home. Um, and I'll let you know when I'm home, but let me just stay on the phone with you until I get on the road. 
and I'll fill you in with the details later. Mm. And I think having those resources, and that truly is what programs like Alcoholics Anonymous do. Yeah, um, is create that community and that accountability. Yes, creating yeah. really, and this is what I always, because there's always people that are defiant against AA, get defiant against you know, recovery-oriented support groups. Um, there's some great religious ones also. I know, I forget what it's called, but there's one with the Saddleback Church started. Okay. Um, but one of the big things people are like, I don't like these support groups. Support groups aren't the cure for addiction. They're just there so that you have additional support sure. and a social group of people that don't do drugs or drink yeah. that you can rely on. That's There's no real crazy science to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that's, community. Yeah, it's community. And reaching so, out to a person. Mm-hmm. You know, developing those friendships with people where you can reach out to them yeah. and call somebody when you're struggling. Yeah. I think it's so important to have a point of contact that's not like a non-judgment, totally there to support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's not always accessible in our culture. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people you can't talk to about what you're going through in a genuine way because you know, their immediate response might be to judge or to like try to pull you out of it immediately. And I'm sure there's a lot of understanding in the community of the specifics of like, right. like you just even saying like, I don't want to talk about it. I just need to talk until I get yeah. home. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of people in society don't really understand that, you know, when you're, if you're an opiate addict and you think you can drink normal, when your dopamine levels in your brain get the same spike from a, from alcohol, that's not possible. That Unfortunately, it doesn't matter what your drug of choice is. We've lost the ability to engage in substance use. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are ill-informed about that. So even families will be like, well, can't they have a glass of wine with dinner? No. Like, if they can, that's fantastic. Maybe they were just struggling with something. Yeah. But... Most people I've seen, if they go back to drinking, it's a matter of time before they end up back in my office. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. Which I, yeah, I understand that. Frequently happens. And can I ask too, so was your trigger at the after hours just the visual of the cocaine? Yeah. I, I, I don't I mean, I've been in situations where I've seen drugs before. I, I think it was just knowing that that guy was so freely giving away drugs. Well, mm. Yeah, obviously it, it was just free, there. But accessible. it was there. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I could do it without people knowing. Yeah. Um, which was like kind of a thing for me <laughs> where I was like, I could totally, but I played the, I, I know this so well that I played the tape through, which most people don't have the ability to do, which is like, yeah, but tomorrow what's going to happen in your brain when you're like, well, I already did it. Maybe I should try drinking again. Maybe I should do this. And then everything falls apart in my life. Yeah, slippery slope. Um, and that's the thing I've been I've been fortunate enough to learn the hard way um, through my mom, who now has three and a half years sober, is that it all will catch up eventually if you don't, you know, if you think you can drink normal. My mom went to treatment when she was nineteen for a drug problem, and then she could drink normal for a few years, mm-hmm. and then it it all fell apart again. Gotcha. When you work with addicts, is it um, narcotics, alcohol, and do you ever do sex addicts? Do sex addicts? Do you ever talk to sex addicts? <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. Okay. I have. I don't specifically treat sex addiction, but um, I have worked with sex addicts before. Do they sometimes go hand in hand? Yes. I imagine. Yeah. Um, especially, I think a lot of people aren't talking about this. There's this big push in the opiate epidemic, which is fantastic that it's getting coverage. I'm so happy that the Surgeon General of the United States of America three years ago had an entire press briefing on addiction, had an mm -hmm. entire booklet about addiction. Nothing makes me happier. However, we're ignoring the fact that meth is surging, that meth and sex are a component of one another. Um, I know that, I don't know if you saw the news, but there was a, a story about an anchor for KTLA who was in an apartment right here in, close by in Glendale um, that was in a meth and sex fused like relationship and ended up dying. Oh, no, um, no. Yeah, it was like an anchor for the news. And yet no one is talking about the meth epidemic that's occurring. And meth is surging right now. And I'm seeing a lot of meth addicts come into treatment. Mm. Um, I don't know why that's occurring, but you're seeing more of a push with that and like meth and heroin combined. Well, I mean, I'm sure it's because of what happened with Oxycontin and stuff. Yes. What's that horrible... Demonic Purdue. family. The Sackler family. The Sacklers. Yeah, the wonderful. Can suck my Sackler. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, y'all. I'm being very judgmental. But like, oh my goodness. Like this is, they are the poster for the corruptibility, the corruptive power of money. Yeah. Like that's really all they care about. And and to your point earlier about people placing blame on addicts instead of seeing it as a, as a disease, which it is yeah. that family, at least one member of it has been quoted as saying like, well, it's their problem. Yeah. They made yeah. that choice. And it's like, really? And one of the most beloved addicts that I'm closest to in my life, um, was struggling with sobriety since 12 years old. He's been in and out of sobriety and he was doing really well. And then he got in an accident at work yeah. and he was pres prescribed mother fricking Oxycontin. And I yeah. was like, how, what, yeah. how did you guys didn't even have a discussion about him struggling with addiction, that this is going to lead him down the dirtiest path. And, and yes, that is the, his new struggle. And in New Jersey, it's skyrocketing. Oh, yeah. I have another friend who wound up at his lowest point in North Philadelphia, which is like the roughest neighborhood in Philly in an alley, like on a holiday, like barely wearing clothes in the middle of the winter looking for heroin. Yeah. And he's just like some, perfectly lovely suburban boy that I went to high school with. Yeah. And that is the path that the Sackler family has set very, yeah. you know. Well, they, they made all these doctors believe that these studies they put out yeah. said that addiction, that Oxycontin wasn't addictive. And so you have this perfect storm of all these people saying, well, we believe the study without looking into the study. Right. That's why it's so important to do research. It's so important to look at what, Drugs are being prescribed and talking with your medical doctors about, you know, the withdrawal symptoms. I think I would not be surprised if, if Xanax becomes the next big drug we start talking about because I can tell you benzodiazepines are prescribed at a rate just as high as Oxycontin. 
and yet people rely on Xanax and benzodiazepines and, and galanopin, and rightfully so in certain circumstances. However, that is a worse withdrawal than heroin. Really? It's the worst withdrawal. Oh my it's gosh, that, that's crazy. Heroin withdrawal will not, under most circumstances, kill you. It's very painful. Alcohol and benzodiazepines will um, wow. if you're not in a detox facility or detoxing on your own. Wow, that's wild. And they're so normalized. Like the first yeah. thing that comes to my head is like Amy Schumer making jokes about yeah. being on clonopin and stuff. And I, I don't judge people if they feel they need medication for right. specific things. I'm one of those hippy dippy, like try to avoid it at all well, costs. If there's, you know, a great example is I know somebody that is, has a serious anxiety towards flying and will take one when they get on a plane once in every three months. Yeah. Okay. But if you're relying on that substance for your, for your help, for your, uh, for everything in your life, then maybe it's not good. Yeah. Um, everything needs to be taken with why, what is your intention in doing that? I think it's kind of the background of religious institutions as well. What is your, in, what is your reason for doing something? Um, if you're doing something specifically to relieve that symptom over and over again, maybe it's better to find out why you're feeling that symptom of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we live in a culture that's very, I need quick, fast help now. Yeah. Um, and it's not always like that. Therapy is not a day trip. Yeah. Um, when I actually first went into therapy, I remember my therapist telling me, I told her my whole story. And I said, okay, so there it is. Um, I don't know what to tell you, but that's my story. <laughs> that's how I got here. And uh, I don't know. I know you say it in a very detached. And like she told me like, hey, you just told me all these traumatic events yeah. within a period of five minutes. And so we're going to take the next six months and go into them. Oh, um, that which sounds was excruciating. A, it was the process. Yeah. But I'm able to talk about it now because I've actually walked through them and I know that story. And mm -hmm. I'm able to detach in a positive way where I know my story helps people. So I'm able to share that. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Well, I was also thinking about... Adderall, for one. Yes. I, I know a lot of people based in New York specifically, and not to like stereotype or whatever, but I do, I not only feel, but I see when I'm there the intensity and the fast pace that people are like required to live under and to survive in that place. And I see a lot of friends turning to Adderall as like that. Yes thing to keep them on that mouse wheel like running like a maniac when again it's another drug that was originally if you look at the origin story of it it was originally marketed as a diet pill um it was actually the drug andy warhol was caught i don't believe that's i believe that's true um i'd have to look that up but i was told it's the drug that andy warhol was carrying home when he was murdered oh um, was the diet pill of Adderall. <laughs> it's, it's a, literally methamphetamine. I mean, it's, it's yeah, amphetamine it's like salts. Um, so, it's really wild. Well, and there's, there are those people that actually need medication for it. And then there are people that like, I have a dear friend who we had a conversation with where I said, you know, he is a recovering methamphetamine addict. And I said, why are you on Adderall? Like, he kept relapsing, and I said, you know, you're giving your brain 
little spasms of that feeling again. Yeah. And whether you're taking it prescribed or not, as someone that's a methamphetamine addict, that's between a doctor and you, but it's something that maybe isn't the best drug to take. Well, that is what's so mind-blowing about it to me, too. The, the fact that a doctor can write something off and then make it normal and acceptable in society. Right. Like, <laughs> I also ran into someone. It was really funny. He was, like, sober, and I, he kind of had this judgmental attitude about me, like, having some wine or something. And we stopped by his apartment, and he had a whole table of, like, prescription drugs. Right. And I'm like... Look, I'm not gonna, I'm not yeah. gonna judge, but really, like, just because a doctor wrote you that note, you know, you are you. But that I think is, you know, a problem that a lot of people fall into. And I just remember really blindly taking any medication when I was younger because I just trusted doctors. And I think, obviously, the older I get and the more that I understand yeah. our healthcare system and. For example, one time I went to a dermatologist to get my moles checked out for cancer, and I left there with six prescriptions, none of which I filled out because I was like, I don't want any of this. One of them was to like make my crotch area all one color. He was like, I was like, I'm not... Who do you think I'm trying to impress? Like, I don't, I don't need my entire crotch to be a single color. But he was like, you know, this is if it bothers you, like, you know, your aesthetic down there. And then he gave me, he's like, that rosacea on your cheeks, if you want to get rid of that. And I'm like, you mean my natural rosy cheeks? It like, but it was crazy. Yeah. And I was just like, obviously, all these companies are paying you to try to like peddle their drugs. And, well, and you also have this concept of what the insurance carriers have now required. So, you know, m the medical field has undergone a lot of changes and some for better, some for worse. Um, but somewhere along the lines, this, the world changed. When you see a doctor, you have to get what you need to fix the problem. And so a lot of these doctors, that's how Oxycontin became such a thing as well, is like if a patient is saying... I have pain, fix it. And you have 15 minutes with that patient. Mm -hmm. You can imagine where, you know, obviously both of us don't have medical training, but when you're in pushed for time and you can't really sit with a client and ask those questions, yes, of course. That was the, that's the first thing you're going to say. Well, I need to put you out of pain. Yeah. So here's this prescription. Right. Um, and you're seeing that transpire into what's happening with opiates is that, this is what people, and if you don't do that, I had a conversation with my general practitioner that said um, they were actually drug testing clients that were on opiates to make sure they were within proper levels. Um, and, uh, and they said they got a lot of pushback from people that were like, you're treating me like a drug addict. And they're like, we're just trying to cover our liabilities when it comes to if we are going I mean, to prescribe you drugs. I mean, that sounds like a drugs. really good idea. Yeah. 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 Uh, because that's what I was going to ask you, like, so while we're on the topic of medication, because I do not, <laughs> I'm not trying to judge or shame anyone that does feel they need prescription drugs. That is completely acceptable. But in that case, you would suggest doing your research and taking the recommended yes. dosage. Um, you know, talking, having a real conversation with a medical doctor about the medication you're taking, um, whether that be benzodiazepines, Adderall, opiates of any sort, um, 
obviously, uh, to me, any medication that's not a scheduled drug, if your doctor asks you to take it, sure. Um, but if it's a scheduled narcotic, ask a little bit, find out some reasons, look at what's what the process is. For instance, there are a number of non-narcotic ADD and ADHD medications out there, but they're never peddled because they're not amphetamines. Oh. And um, that's surprising, but there are drugs that do work that, you know, sometimes they don't. And if they don't, maybe try, you know, a low dose of one of the narcotic medications if you're not a drug addict. But yeah, it's important to look at where, you know, where these drugs are and, and your spectrum and um, what they're going to do to your body. I yeah. think just as a human being. Right. And in no way does that mean I'm giving any medical advice. I'm not a medical doctor. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like solid advice to me. I don't know. We can call a doctor and ask them to back it up. <laughs> um, also, too, I mean, to sort of wrap things up, I was reading, I was listening to a podcast and someone was talking about the statistics of suicide rates going up especially among like adolescents and teenage mm -hmm. girls and then also the staggering statistic that like 41 percent of the population identified as like very alone or very lonely and i you know don't want to oversimplify anything that's real like a disease like a trigger that you have from childhood what you know etc however i think it is worth pointing out like as well where you're engaging your time and energy like if you have a community of people that love you that your lifestyle isn't based in drinking and drugs all the time like you have a solid group around you, you have solid family if you're blessed enough to have that and you're not on your phone on your instagram all the time perpetuating that loneliness mm -hmm. and because for me i think i turn to I mean, I love having a glass of wine in my house by myself. Like, I don't feel like a weirdo if I'm doing that. But I've definitely done it to my own detriment if I'm in a bad mood. And because I have addicts in my family, I've tried to be very mindful. Mm -hmm. For example, I love painkillers. <laughs> like, if I've ever been prescribed a painkiller for a surgery or whatever, I'm like, oh, dang. I love this way too much. So I've just tried to be really mindful i'm lucky i don't have the addictive personality mm. but like you know what are some of the suggestions you have of those sort of issues well i, I think and the main thing because i get asked this question all the time which is you know um do i exhibit behaviors that are of addicts things like that um really i always go to the most simplified answer um which is despite negative consequences continued behavior whether it's sex whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's uh, addiction to the internet, um, or some other addiction you have. It's all, despite negative consequences, continued use. For instance, I know people that have gotten DUIs that are good people that are not alcoholics. They happened to drink and drive before the world of Uber, and they made a mistake, and they will never do it again. The alcoholic is the person that, you know, goes, oh, man, I was pulled over on Hollywood Boulevard. The cops are out to get me. I'm just not going to drive on Hollywood anymore. Yeah. That's that, that excuse behavior of it's not my fault. I wasn't in the wrong. That's the despite negative consequences, continued behavior. Um, 
and that is where I think addiction lies between normal people and the people that suffer from addiction. It's like you can have negative consequences, but are you understanding that those are negative consequences? Those people I know that I was talking about that have gotten DUIs in the past that are not alcoholics, that are more hypersensitive to that. Uh, The person I'm, I'm thinking of in my head, they legitimately will not drive a car if they've had one glass of anything because they're so afraid of that situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that's where... That's a really concise lies. way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Despite negative consequences, continued behavior. And I think that's a really good tip for anyone that's just like even dabbling in something. Yeah. Like, for example, I don't feel addicted to Instagram. However, if I look at it too many times in the day, I do notice more depressive behavior, more Mm -hmm. depressive thoughts, like more anxiety. So it's just like when I don't recognize that behavior and I keep picking up my phone to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same. You could calibrate yourself with when you're taking prescribed Adderall or when you're drinking some wine. Right. And we also live in the age of I want it now. I want it fast. You know, Mm -hmm. we have the age of everything is digital and we can get instant gratification. If I post a picture online um, it's funny because I always said I wanted to do my master's thesis originally when I thought I was going to go to master's school uh, for graduate school. I uh, I wanted to do a, a master's thesis on the idea of celebrity and what it does to the psyche because I dealt with Hollywood socialites who get sober. And, uh, and in reality, we now have this world of everyone as a socialite. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of see the levels of depression with, the fact that we get to see everyone's pictures of every vacation they take and how perfect their lives are when no one's life is perfect. Um, Speak for yourself. <laughs> you know, people are, I mean, I've seen people before they come into treatment post pictures at our property that's really nice. Um, and then they're coming into rehab, though. But wow. they'll post it like it's... No, and then I know, probably looked at it like, home. that bitch at that <laughs> mansion. <laughs> Yeah. And then I was depressed all And then day. it's like, it's like, but they're in treatment. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's all a ruse. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, could you leave us with a bit of hope? Anyone that either is dealing with an addict that they absolutely love, anyone that is an addict, anyone that has in recovery. Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, it's always important to, um, go at any type of confrontation with an addict or dealing with someone that's an addict to always, you know, talk with love. Those people are still inside that care, that love and success is possible, that people do get sober. I have treated hundreds of addicts, thousands of addicts probably at this point. Yeah, thousands, I'd say. There's probably... You know, I would say the success rate is pretty good when people really want to get sober. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, do your research. If you're someone struggling, find a good center. Um, my, our website, altacenters.com, if you want to reach out to any of our staff, um, they are there not just to pitch our facility. If you're a fit for something else or you want help, we'd love to help try to figure out what facility that really caters to what people want want or need um you know and that you can survive anything i know that all three of my brothers we grew up in a 
family full of addiction and we are all raising our new families and, and lives together as healed people. Um, and I think that's the great story is I grew up in punk rock and hardcore and I think the most punk rock thing in the world now is the fact that I defied statistics and I'm still here and I actually do well for myself. I have a family. Uh, I always used to think my grandma was this mean evil lady and uh, she had three kids that were drug addicts. She was just crazy because she had this insane family um, and you know I, I've grown to love my grandma and we have a great relationship today and I get to be with my family on holidays and our family is back and together as closely knit as possible. So it's possible there is hope, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Amazing. Thank you so much, Garrett. Of course. Thank you so much. Um, can people reach out if they want to contact you? Yes. What's the best way to get in touch? Um, you can go to our website, Alta Centers, A-L-T-A, Centers, C-E-N-T-E-R-S dot com, um, or give us a call at uh, 818-616-7443. We have a 24-hour admissions line, either myself or one of my staff members will answer we have a team of 10 people so it's one person that answers is going to be highly trained and qualified to handle amazing all right well thank you guys so much for listening we love you guys god bless <laughs>